So let's go ahead and continue. We're continuing in our study of the preeminence of Christ, that in all things he be is preeminent. Where do we hear that verse? Where? Colossians. You're with the right ladder. Colossians what? Colossians what? Two. No, no, I, I did that, you know, two. How many was that? Tell them, Mama. 18. 218. That in all things he might have the preeminence or be preeminent. That Christ is above all. Again, what makes this man, Jesus, the single most important man in all creation? What makes him to be able to be our Messiah? What makes him to be able to atone for our sin? Hey, listen to Stephen, man. He's, he's, he's ready to pump it out. He's the son of God and the son of man. He's not even letting me finish pumping the, the, you know, the, he is ready to go with it. He's the son of God and the son of man. I think we have it by now. Do we have that? Understanding. Okay. So last week we saw that God's purpose to be glorified in his people. This is God's creative purpose. He has made us for his own glory so that in us he may be able to residentially set himself relationally, his glory and all about him himself in a people so that in us in everything about us we may be the corporate expression of the very glory of God's own son who is the glory of the father do we see that the glory of the son who is the glory of the father and remember we saw that last week in John 17 and 1 through 3 when Jesus begins this great, what we call this great high priestly prayer that he is praying before he goes into the garden of Gethsemane. This is the prayer that he prays and then he go, they cross the brook Hedron and they go into the garden and then begins the greatest battle for man's will that ever occurred in the, in the garden. That Jesus submits himself to the Father's will even at the cost of his own life. And so in John 17, 1 through 3, remember we saw this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Now, remember, when, when we see that, the son of God is intrinsically, do you know what I mean by that? Because of who he is. He's intrinsically, because of who he is, because of his relationship with the Father. He is eternally, intrinsically glorified with the Father, in the Father, the Father, in the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Correct? Is that correct? So what is the Son doing saying, glorify me? I mean, the Father can say, you are my glory. Well, he's not talking about himself only as a son of God, but he's also referring to himself and emphasizing in this particular prayer his ministry as the son of man. Do we see that? We have to make sure we get these distinctions. So he as the 
man of God is entering the garden, uh, and, uh, and, and about to enter the garden, and before he does so, he's going to pray. And he says, Father, I'm about to enter the greatest battle. I'm about to go to the cross. Glorify me. That your glory may be residential in me as a man. And not only in me, but then, therefore, in all of your people whom I will represent and for whom I will substitute in my death. In order that the Son may glorify you. So how is the Father glorified? He's glorified in the Son intrinsically as the Father is glorified in the uh, in. They are glorified in each other intrinsically as a Holy Spirit also. But again, as a man, he is to be glorified. This is the purpose of God, creating us to be the glory of his presence in us. How? Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Oh, wait. You gave him authority over all flesh. This is John 17. This isn't Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, all authority. This is before the ascension, remember? So Jesus is talking about all authority has been given to him in this prayer before he even goes to the cross. When was this authority given to Jesus? Eternally. It's been that way. This has been the purpose of God forever. Remember, this is what we said. I have set my king on, my, uh, on Mount Zion. Remember that? So that all to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So Jesus, by faith, by faith, that Psalm 2 was about him and his coming exaltation. He is walking as a man who knows the word of God, and he's walking by faith in the written word of God. Trusting day by day that what God has said about him and has given to him to do and has declared that he will be able to do this and this will be the result of that. All of that in the Old Testament. He's walking by faith, fulfilling each one of these, if you would, scriptural mandates about himself. And so when it comes to Psalm 2, he's like we are. He reads it. But inside of him, he knows by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, as he's reading this, it's about you. This is who you are. This is your purpose. God the Father is talking about you. He sees that by faith. However, he also knew and trusted that Psalm 110 existed. That it explained how his messianic role had to be fulfilled before he could be installed as king. Psalm 2 talks about today what? I have begotten you. I have installed you upon my mountain. Remember Mount Zion. Remember Psalm 2. That's the result. You're going to be the king. I'm going to install you. You're going to rule and reign over the kingdom of, uh, over the kingdom of God forever. But in order to get to that, he also knows Psalm 110 is there. Psalm 110 must be fulfilled prior to or in order that Psalm 2 be fulfilled. And both of them will be fulfilled by the same person. But Psalm 110 is the activity that this Messiah must go through on earth in order to be exalted as, as um, uh, prophesied in Psalm 2. Psalm 110 is the most explicit, probably, um, this is my opinion, but I think it is, is the most explicit scripture about, the Old Testament scripture about the role of the Messiah 
that the role of Messiah had to fulfill in order to redeem God's people. So it tells us who he's going to be, what his role is, how that's going to be accomplished. And so as a result, Jesus knows, he knows this, that the path to the throne was through the cross. How does he know it? How does Jesus know that he must go to the cross? He knows the scriptures. Now, don't disconnect this. He just doesn't know it. You know, I, I know that I'm going to go to the cross. I know that I'm the Messiah. I know I'm going to suffer and die. I know I'm going to rise again. I know I'm going to be installed as king. This isn't some kind of ethereal knowledge. This is the concrete knowledge of the specific revelation given to him by the Holy Spirit through the word of God made in him real and personal by the Holy Spirit. So how does Jesus know anything about himself and his purpose? How? Through the scriptures. Now, this should say something to us about ourselves. Jesus knows nothing about himself and his purpose and his future except it is revealed to him by God through the Holy Spirit on the basis of what is stated where? In the Old Testament. Have we thought of that? He is concretely connected to the Old Testament. If it ain't in the Old Testament, it's not for Jesus. If it is in the Old Testament, it is about and for him. Did we see that this morning? The scriptures are the central revelation, the central encouragement, the central leading, the central everything by the power and presence of God's spirit in him, manifesting, revealing, and applying the reality, the truth of what is said in the Old Testament. Do we get that this morning? We must make sure we get it. So when we say Jesus knows something and he looks at Psalm something and whatever these Psalms are, and he knows that, this is central to his, under, his self, if you would, self-understanding. So if he had to have Psalm 10 in order to understand his own role, we need to make sure we look at least a little bit at Psalm 10 in order to understand the role of the Messiah. Amen. This is why it's so important for so many who study uh, the Christian uh, faith, who walk in this. We must know so much more about the Old Testament. We just must know so much more. We don't want to be disconnected. So as a result, what does Jesus know? Jesus knows that he has come to die on the cross. He knows that because at a very young age, we don't know when this began to be revealed to him explicitly. We don't know that. I don't think as a five-year-old boy, he knew this. But he grew in, in the scriptures, remember? He grew in this. He grew in his knowledge. But there came a time when as he read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit began to cause it to dawn on him. This is you. It's you. It's your calling. It began to be revealed in him, and it began to grow in him, began to develop in him. 
and he began to see it and receive it and walk in it and embrace it. You see, it's that gradual understanding. As he studied and learned the scriptures, the revelation began to be larger and larger and more clear every day. It didn't just kind of come on him all of a sudden. It came on him through learning and studying and obedience and walking. Do we, do we see that this morning? Let's not mythologize Jesus. That he came into the world and as a baby he knew everything and went to he No way. No way. Learned he obedience by the things he suffered. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Somebody said that somewhere in Luke 2. Now. Luke 2, what, 53, I think it is, somewhere right around in there. So let's look at some of the things. As a result, Jesus knew the path to the throne was, to the throne was through the cross. Why? Number one, because Jesus knew and trusted the scripture. For instance, Isaiah 53. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew when he read that, it was about himself. He knew that he had come to lay down his life for the sheep. Remember, he says that in John 17, 10. I lay down my life for the sheep. How does he know that? Wendy, how does he know it? Because he knows Isaiah 53, for example. Oh, you follow me this morning. Number two, Jesus knew by faith. Remember, by faith. How do we know this is true? How do we today know all of this is true? How? By faith. Faith in the written word of God. Faith in the applied, experienced word of God in my heart. Correct? Both. Not just what's written, but what's written becomes implanted in me by the Spirit. And all of a sudden, it becomes real in me. And it's like, wow, this is the truth. Amen? It's the word of God applied by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the living application of God's word in us and for us. Jesus knew by faith that he would be raised through the glory of the Father. He knew that. Jesus knew by faith that he would be exalted to the right, to the right hand of the mighty one to return with, with his inherited people. He knew this. He knew he would be exalted. Why? For instance, he knew Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The Son of Man, remember, comes up to the Ancient of Days. Remember that? I think we talked about that. Didn't we talk about that? Yes. He knew that scripture. He knows other scriptures. In fact, the entire revelation of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is in him in a living, literal way. There's not one scripture in the entire Tanakh that Jesus is not absolutely familiar with. The whole, the, whole, the whole revelation of God in the Old Testament is his by personal study and learning and in, is in him residentially by the Holy Spirit. This morning, let's, we're going to look at Psalm 110, beginning with verses 1 and 2, in order to understand its significance to Jesus' messianic role as God's high priest. Did you see that? His messianic role as God's high priest. And we're not going to do this exhaustively because we've done it in other studies, but we will hit a couple of highlights. So <clears throat> let's read the first two, two verses of Psalm 110. 
highly, highly, highly significant and central psalm to the identity and role of God's Messiah. The Lord, remember Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. Now you see, do you have both of those in uh, in the two different words? L, capital L, capital O-R-D is Yahweh. And then capital L, little O-R-D is Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus reads this. He reads it. In these two verses, Jesus would have understood you see how we're putting it today? I am not primarily, primarily, first of all, interested in how we understand it. I'm first of all wanting us to see how what? Jesus understood it. Too often when we look at these scriptures, we begin with we understand it this way and we see it that way. That's important, Ron, but it's only important because who understood it first? Jesus is sitting here. Looking at this scripture, he's reading it one day, and he reads these two verses. And as he reads these two verses, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, this is you. Ken, can you imagine what that was? Have you ever read a word in the uh, scripture, and, and it, all of a sudden you realize it applied to you? What did it do for you? Oh. This is for me. And so as this man, this young man, maybe this teenage boy, I don't know. We don't know when. But as he read it, he saw it was about himself. And you see this word and the next word and the next word are the building blocks of revelation of the structure of God's role in him as God's Messiah. So he sees this. In these two verses, Jesus would have understood that he was the subject of God's command to sit the position of a king having finished his work. A king sits when his work is over. You're allowed to sit in the presence of the king when you know everything is okay. You just don't go in and the king is there and you sit down. Hey, where you at, king? And you sit down. You are invited or commanded, if you would, allowed to sit, which is the place of finished whatever it is and acceptance. Acceptance. So sit. Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand. The significance of Psalm 110 can be seen in how it is used in the New Testament as the scriptural verification of the identity and work of Jesus as God's Messiah. Remember this in Matthew 22, 43 to 45. Jesus quotes this verse from Psalm 110 in Matthew 22, 43 to 45 in response to having his authority questioned by the Jewish leadership. Remember, they were questioning him. By what authority do you do this? Who gave you this authority? Where does it come from? Remember, he's doing, he's saying things, he's doing things that they don't like. They don't see the authority. What they saw was a religious man. That's all they saw. They saw a religious man. 
they didn't like him because he was stepping on their toes and he was infringing on their area of responsibility and whatever. They didn't like him. They were jealous of people going to him. They were not coming to the high priest. And so they were going that way. They were maybe lose. Who knows what was happening? So they were questioning his authority. <clears throat> and so they're asking him questions. Then Jesus answers them with a question, which he then answers by himself. He asks them a question, and then he answers his own question. And in his answer, he's quoting from Psalm 110. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about Christ? Now, remember, Christ means Messiah. When they hear the word Christ, they're not thinking, oh, that's your last name. What do you think about the Messiah? This was the standard word for the for the one whom Israel, for whom Israel was looking as a deliverer, the one who will come and free Israel from the bondage of Roman rule, etc., and make Israel a political power on earth as it was during the days of David. That's what they're looking for. Come on, that's what they're looking for. And that is part of it, but that's not the heart of it. And so Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. Well, that's easy, right? He's supposed to be, he's promised to be the son of David. They knew that. Then Jesus said, well, then how does David in the script, in the spirit, call him Lord? You see, Jesus asked the most ridiculous questions. I mean, whoever thought of this? We don't think that way. We just kind of accept it and move along. But Jesus wants them to think about what they say they believe. And he says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Do, are you following? How can David be his son if he calls him Lord? I mean, how does this work? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare that day to ask him any more questions. <laughs> At least they got the point. We're not doing well with our questions. <laughs> They're not accomplishing our purpose, a desire to entrap him. Here are some other New Testament references from Psalm 110, the first two verses. Acts 2, 34 and 36. Remember, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he's going to explain something about David, who is no longer here. He's buried. He's not risen. He's buried. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes from Psalm 110, 1-2, to, to prove that Jesus was the subject of the psalm, not David. And he says, for it, it was not David who ascended into heaven. How could David be the subject David is the one through whom God reveals, or to whom and through whom God reveals this and gives this revelation. But it's not about David. David is a receptacle or a voice speaking out this revelation. How can it be David, he says? David didn't ascend. David's dead. Look, don't you remember? There's his tomb right over there. It says David dies here. R.I.P. Whatever that means, rest in peace. David's dead. So it can't be about David. So, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. First Corinthians 15, 20 to 27, 
It's kind of a long verse, but we'll see. David, Paul references Psalm 110.2 in his defense of Jesus' resurrection. You see, the revelation of who Jesus is, the revelation of his role, the revelation of the effect of his role was never something that was taken for granted. It was always proved by being anchored in the revealed word of God from the Old Testament. Are we seeing the significance of the Old Testament? This is not just something, well, we believe Jesus this, we believe that, we believe that. No, that's not sufficient. We believe it because the Bible or the Old Testament or the Tanakh says it. Amen? Amen? The Bible or the Tanakh says it. Therefore, we believe it. If the Old Testament doesn't say it, we don't believe it. If the Old Testament says it, we do believe it. Now, that should say to us, we need to be better in understanding uh, and, and studying and reading the Old Testament. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, <clears throat> this is probably the most extensive uh, uh, defense of the uh, resurrection and explanation of it. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. They were debating, has Christ been raised? Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Maybe we missed the resurrection, whatever, and so on. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, what man? Adam, by one man came death. Remember that, Genesis 3, 6? By man also came the resurrection of the dead. Who's that second by a man? Jesus. For as in Adam all die. Do you see that our salvation is not a matter of our work? It is a matter of our position. Do we see that? We were condemned not because we did anything wrong. We were condemned because we were in Adam, therefore we did wrong things. Do we see that? You're not condemned because you sin. That's not why you're condemned, because you sin. How many of us still continue to sin? Oh, about five of us. Okay, that's great. The others need to repent of uh, lying. Okay, <laughs> that wipes out everybody. But... <clears throat> Don't, don't think this way. Here's one of the problems I see. Too often, I hear people say, a homosexual is not going to heaven because he practices homosexuality. If he's not going to heaven, that's not the reason he's not going to heaven, is it? Why is he not going to heaven? Because he's an Adam. His position originally in Adam under sin has never been changed. Therefore, because it's never been changed, he practices what he does. Are you with me today? Hmm? You're not condemned because you do something or did something wrong. And we're not saved because we did something right. We are condemned or saved, if you would, because of our original position has been changed from condemnation to sanctification or uh, justification, let's say. That's why. 
we were originally in Adam. Jesus came and won the day. And as a result, we were taken out of Adam spiritually and reconstituted in Christ. Therefore, we have eternal life. It has nothing to do with our activity. The root is the position. The fruit is the activity. The root is the position in Adam or in Christ. The fruit is either the sin or the obedience. Are you listening to me this morning? So let's not be hung up on, I did this today, am I still? The question is not, if I did something, am I condemned? The question is, am I in Christ, am I in Adam? Now, if I am in Christ, therefore I should not be sinning, and I handle it differently than worry about my position. Correct? Okay. That's a long discussion on one verse, right? But each about Christ will be made alive. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, heir to those who are Christ after his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Why? Where do you get that from? Where is the proof of this? The last enemy will be abolished. How do you know? And then he quotes, and he has put all things under subjection under his feet. Someone says, how do you know? Where's the scriptural proof? When we hear things about Jesus, we do not need to begin a debate with someone. We need to ask them primarily first, where is your scriptural proof? Amen? That's where the discussion remains. That's where it remains. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4, and verse 13, the author quotes Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he had made purification, he's talking about Christ. <clears throat> he, God's exalted king, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited. Remember, inherited in Psalm 2, verse 8, I give you the nations as your inheritance, a more excellent name than they. Remember that more excellent name in Philippians 2, 9 through 11? Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every other name. Right. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? You see, the Jewish people, <clears throat> some of them, many of them, worshipped angels. They thought that angels were the ones that the mediators of God. They had some different or aberrant understanding of angelology. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, the author references 110, Psalm 110, the first two verses, to show that Jesus is God's high priest who is superior to all the Levitical priests in the sacrificial system itself. Every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Why? Because you see, the blood of animals and goats was never sufficient. They were always to be typifying the one sacrifice that God would send. They were always signs pointing to the reality. So what does Colossians 2.17 says? Christ is the what? Substance or the reality. 
But he, Jesus, or Christ, the Son, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, did what? Sat down at the right hand of God. The sitting position means it is finished. It is finished. There's nothing else to do. There's no more necessity, nor is there any possibility for continuing sacrificing of sin. Do we see that? There is no such thing as the continual sacrifice for sins. It's impossible. Waiting for that time until all his enemies made a footstool under his feet. For by one offering, <clears throat> he perfected what? Do you see that word? For by the one offering, he has perfected what? For all times, those who are being sanctified. And who are the ones being sanctified? The ones who have already been justified. Who are the ones being sanctified? The ones who already have been what? Justified. We are being sanctified. Why? Because we have already been justified. This morning in the sermon, I'm going to reference justification as the root and sanctification as the fruit. So if we are being sanctified by God, what does that prove? The root produces the fruit. The fruit proves the root. Is this too high for some of us? Do we see that? The root produces what? The fruit, the little flowers. The little flowers, the fruit proves or manifests the reality of what? That there is a root. I don't think any flower grows without being rooted somewhere. Maybe it does. And even if it's in water, there's something there that causes that thing to have life in itself. In these two verses, <clears throat> David records in the verses we just quoted from Psalm 110, records the words of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to one of David's descendants. The Lord says to my Lord, Adonai. Notice that Yahweh cannot be speaking to David, but is speaking to David's Lord. He says, God spoke to my God. What does that mean? God spoke to my Lord. Well, then this means someone is greater than David. And yet David's the king. Who's greater than David at that time? Using the Hebrew word Adonai, David is showing that Yahweh is speaking to someone who was greater than David. Adonai means a ruler, superior, a king, you know, someone in charge. Yahweh is speaking to another divine person. You see, there's a conversation here. And I'm hoping I'll have some time to do a little bit about this, but I'll just say it this way. What we're seeing in this verse, what we saw in, in Psalm 2, is, is a pre-temporal, what? Before time. What we're seeing in these Psalms is a pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian conversation. What does that mean? That in the Godhead, there is a conversation among the persons of God before the foundation of the world, right? So I just put it in shorter terms. This is a pre 
temporal, intra-Trinitarian conversation. We've talked about that. Remember the eschatological meaning of the word today. It has its root in eternity, and it continues on, and may I continue on too. So Yahweh is speaking to another divine person, and one who is equal with himself. And so he says, sit down, sit down. <clears throat> in other words, when he says sit down, this means that this Adonai, this David's Lord, has done something that is now accepted by Yahweh as completed. Oh, you're following. He didn't just say, hey, come on and sit down. There's something that this Adonai has done. So that God the Father says, it's completed. I've accepted it. Sit. As an indication that it is finished. Where do you three, hear those three words? John 19 verse 30. It is a revelation of the reality of John 19 verse 30. So God says, sit down. I accept it. How do we know God accepted the death of Jesus as our death? The resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval and acceptance. That God has accepted the blood sacrifice of this man on our behalf as our substitute and as our representative. <clears throat> you see that? Sit down. And it also not only says the work is finished, but it is a position of equality. Differentiating, differentiating, differentiating roles, but equality. So we're talking about God the Father asking and commanding or giving permission to whatever words make you feel comfortable, but it, it is a command and says to the Son of God, but the Son of God as to his humanity. You see, God the Father doesn't say to God the Son, as the intrinsic son sit down because the son is always sitting equal with the father. You know that. But as to his humanity and the role that he accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection, as a man, now you may sit with me in the throne. There is a man now who sits in the throne of God. Can you get that? He is a real human being. He's a real human being. He's a man. And then, not only is there a man who has completed his work and sitting as an equal. Now, this man <clears throat> is not ontologically equal with God. He is relationally equal with God. In other words, the man, Jesus, is not God himself. He is relationally you know, he has the son of God, sorry, the nature of the son and the man or in unity here. But the man himself is not God. Does that make sense by himself? Are you with me on this? So in that man, we are also representative, represented. So we are also commanded, if you would, to sit as to the striving that we have to be accepted. Now, what verse did I just quote? Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
I'll let you sit down as to your acceptance. You see it? I'll let you sit down. You sit down. Sit. Sit. And you and I will sit together and rule and reign together over God's universe and God's people forever. That's what's being said here. This is not just about a man on his own. This is about a man in whom we are literally included. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What? Does anybody else know the verse? Blessed be the God and Father and our Lord Jesus. Who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing. Well. In the heavenlies, in Christ. We're there. As he is sitting today, we're there. And I will end with this. Why is it, therefore, since Jesus is sitting, why does Stephen, in chapter 7 of Acts, look up and he says, I see the glory of God and Jesus standing. Why? Because you see, as a king, he sits as to the accomplished, finished work of our salvation. But as a king, he stands over the warfare conducting us, you know, conducting the warfare that is going against us. Do you see it? As to our walk and warfare in this world, he stands. As to our salvation, he what? He sits. Amen. So next week, we'll continue with this.